Podcast. This is John. This is Trav. And this is still Richard. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of strapping yourself in, bringing up those nuclear reactors to full power, and blasting off at 3G's. To infinity and beyond! I'd be happy just to reach orbit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Uh, this week we are talking about Richard's new game called Easy Space. Uh, Easy Space is a reinvention of science fiction uh, as a lot of us grew up with. Uh, it was the original envisioning of how the future was going to be, what the space program was going to be, what basically life in space was going to be. Uh, and... Uh, where the spaceships were long and cylindrical and they uh, and they landed on their butts and they took off in a column of flame. As God and Robert A. Heinlein intended. Right. Richard, of course, we're going to have to talk about that because that doesn't seem to be what you did in your game. So uh, let's start off with the fact that this is a alternate history game. Uh, it actually starts back in 1947. Uh, with the uh, downing of the uh, uh, of the aliens uh, in in uh, Area Fifty Seven, uh, and uh, uh, and of course they they brought in Commander uh, Robert Heinlein from the Navy. Now, uh, are you saying at this point that he had not suffered from tuberculosis? Then, right? Uh, in the beginning of it, it says sometimes history can be changed right. with a, something as small as a sneeze. In other words, he was not mustered out of the Navy for medical reasons, which happened in our timeline. In this one, he's still basically an, an important person now in the Navy, and he is being given the uh, responsibility for noodling out what this crash spaceship can do for the United States primarily and the future. So, uh, which he does. He uh, gathers together a think tank of, of uh, very uh, familiar names uh, and uh, basically your dream team of who you think would have been gathered together in the, uh, 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 in the late 40s to figure out how to make use of alien technology. I'm sorry, I'm, this, is, this is sort of a strange question with Heinlein because it's actually kind of important. Is he still married to Leslie? Um, we never even covered that. Yeah. The reason I'm bringing this up because, because there's been a, there was a long-standing feud between Asimov and Heinlein, and Asimov said he changed when he married Virginia. 
<laughs> I wouldn't doubt well, that. She was a very strong-willed woman. Yeah. I knew Heinlein and Virginia, who were part uh-huh. of the Dorsai. So uh-huh. they were very nice people. Why oh, am yeah. I not surprised, Richard? <laughs> Richard, you name dropper. I first cracked this open, and I'm going, I wouldn't be surprised if he met these people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I've met quite a few of them myself. But I never, I never met any of the old guard. Okay. Well, I, I had a, a great deal of pleasure of speaking at length with El Sprague de Camp um, and uh, Boris Vallejo and uh, a number of people uh, because I, I took them to lunch, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Work, when I was uh, involved with MunchCon in West Virginia. Hmm. So uh, it, it's a, you have a tiny convention that's being held on campus at a, uni- uh, at a university. And so, and of course, people got to eat, right? So you know, we all took turns, you know, taking them to meals. So over the, we, there wasn't, we weren't, Munchkin didn't last a, a ton of years. It, it certainly kind of died off eventually. But for a lot of years that they, it was going as a full-blown convention, there were a lot of guests and it was a lot of opportunities to spend time with them. MunchCon is where I met Bruce, and I also met Lawrence Watt Evans. Actually, you, you did not meet me at, at MunchCon. I invited you to MunchCon after I met you up in that convention in Ohio, which was, I'm not sure. Alzheimer's. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, it wasn't Conclave, it was smaller. It could have been Olcon, it could have been any one of about a dozen conventions. It was uh, it was basically just as I recall, just straight north, uh, past uh, um, you know back past Columbus up there toward you know probably toward Cleveland, but I'm not sure. Anyways, uh, but uh, you were there and uh, uh, that and you you ran us games of uh, mon- mo- uh, Monster Squash, which is what I invited you down to West Virginia for. But let the we're digressing from our topic, so. Hey, I'm the one that does the tangenting around here, okay? Yes, I know. I'm sorry, John. I'm stepping in your bailiwick. All right. Yeah, quit stealing a shtick, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, anyways, uh, so so we have easy space, and uh, Heinlein gets his dream team together, and they, are, and they, they reverse engineer a bunch of alien technologies, uh, which allow them to have a successful moon launch in what year, Trav? Oh, wait a minute. And I saw it, and it was gone here. Ooh, 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 ooh. Teacher, yeah. teacher, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. You caught me with, you know. <laughs> 51, 51, 1951. There we go, 1951. So, you know, that's a lot earlier than in our timeline. <laughs> and because of that, John F. Kennedy decided to um, uh, make an even bigger announcement. He um, altered his... His uh, statement, his his big speech about going to the moon to be going to the stars, and so at that point it was everything was open and people would realize that that aliens were here, and uh, we were in the middle of a huge space race. Uh, now, one of the things that um, I was a little surprised about, Richard, was that uh, there wasn't more of an emphasis of a Cold War. Uh, with the Soviets, I mean, you just basically t- talked about them as if they were nothing—that there was, no, you know, that they were inconsequential. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't see that either. Because unfortunately, I just got to say the Rosenbergs. Yeah, but but Richard, why? What what made you want to go that direction? Because if we leave the left, the communists to the point where they they did not have starflight, then the communists continued, and up into the twentieth century and twenty first century, they still existed. Mm. I don't actually. I don't see it, Richard, because. Is because being left out means their economy will crash eventually because they won't have all this neat stuff. And if the economy crashes, they go away quicker. Basically, they'd be left behind if everyone else is doing space tech and they're stuck on the ground. Yeah, they're they're going to be like a dinosaur. They're going to go extinct. Well, nobody on Earth, um, according to Richard's timeline, had space tech really except for um, our very close partners and the United States. Truman basically said, screw you guys, we're keeping it all for ourselves, which which is why I'm surprised there wasn't a whole big, you know... Uh, War. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. you, know, you give us stuff or we nuke you because, I mean, they were afraid of uh, us take, taking world dominance. You know, they wanted it for themselves. Well, well yeah. There, there I was mean, another factor. It was with the 47 aliens, too. 47? The, the aliens that crashed, the, the, uh, the greys. Okay. What about them? Why? Because they became an integral part of what happened. Okay, because it's not clear in your book that you know the, that the, that the the dead bodies or even the live aliens that arrived a few years later, um, you know, had anything to do with our our, our uh, America's relationship with Russia. Yeah, I mean, there's there, I mean, there's a reason why Asimov was would be a hard sell because he is a Russian Jew and he's also was more or less a flaming liberal, which for most people was communist. Well, that's not true because I mean, so, uh, there wasn't more of a flaming liberal than JFK. Okay, and he was president. Well, yeah, but but my problem with JFK being president is that he was not in this. How can I say? I'm looking at this timeline. I'm going. I can't see JFK getting elected. I hate to. You know what? No, do I see getting elected? The guy he defeated. I see him getting elected because he's actually part of the structure. He knows what's going on. He actually has his fingers in there. I actually think Richard M. Nixon would have a better chance. He made this speech. And he was elected. You know, the big galaxy speech. And we'd already hit the moon by 51. If we'd hit the moon by 51 and he's mm-hmm. there was, I got it up here, 60 to 68. I'd say we would be pretty confident that we were going to go. That's probably why he got reelected, because of the fact that we'd already hit the moon in 51, and by 60, he's making this speech. Everybody's like, I see it happening. So Well, 60, well 61, which means he was already elected. He did make this speech beforehand. He, no, he says, okay, uh, and a little, here's a typo. One says, Kennedy's galaxy speech of 1961, and then the quote says, John F. Kennedy, 1960. Which one is it, Richard? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's another correction. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because if it, is, it is one. Okay, so it's after he's elected. So that's that. Like I said that's my problem with him being elected because, um, yeah, if, if they were really so anti-communist, anti-gung-ho, they they would probably play it up. I mean, you know, I, I you know just I remember LG, LBJ's you know, nuclear bomb uh, um, uh, commercial. You know, for against against Goldwater, you did. Yeah, you know, I can see Nixon pulling a nice little trick like that and showing that oh, this guy would just give it to the Russians. You can't trust him. Well, 
that's that's all very interesting and and john i i think that you should you know m- make some effort to try to like nail that that jello down considering we're talking about an all in the timeline here yeah yeah because yeah unfortunately uh the butterflies are, fl- are flapping yeah everywhere everywhere they are so um but anyways uh so we have the 1947 the roswell crash 1948 highline takes command 1951 we have the moon landing Okay, um, and uh, uh, from uh, the uh, Hughes uh, Aircraft uh, Center, uh, and then 1952, uh, that's when everybody realizes they're aliens because they basically buzz the Capitol and land. All right, 1954, we have a Mars landing. 55, they're building space stations. Now, Richard, I love this because this actually is very much like how it was written back in the day, you know. I mean, the, 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 the technological timeline was immensely compressed. So I'm not going to raise any issues about that, okay, you know, that, that whether I think it's, it's, it's reasonable, it's rational, or anything else. But I'm just saying is that this actually, it, for any of us who are who are listening, this is actually the way a lot of science fiction writers, they really thought that in a couple of years uh, after you know we had a, a moon launch, there was going to be bases on the moon. I mean, thriving industrial complexes. So this is actually very much like that. I mean, it looks very much like a certain German rocket, rocket scientist is in charge of the, of the program. Because this is yes. almost what, this is exactly what Von Braun what wanted. wanted. Yeah. So, uh, so 1955, we have space stations, okay? Uh, and 1956, Mars, and that's two years after the Mars landing, we have a permanent settlement. That's what I was just talking about. Two years later, you know, you know we're, we're talking some serious distance here. Um, and then uh, 1961, the Kennedy's gal- Galaxy speech. And in 1963, uh, we have interstellar flight, okay? So uh, now, Richard, does that mean that that was when they first got a working star drive you know where they weren't just being ferried uh, around by the by the grays the grays were the grays were giving out giving us the technology but i'm just saying is, is that the first time we actually successfully implemented it or that wasn't the first because the, the grays were taking us around places before that right right yeah okay so 1963 is the very first you know Amer- of course it's american uh interstellar flight Okay, so now we've got, uh, and that's what, um, you know, that's 12 years from the first moon launch. And then uh, in 1968, five years later, moon base is established. Also interesting that we'd have a Mars base established almost uh, over 10 years before a moon base is established. Yeah, you know, that's the, to me that this like scream saying there's got to be some stuff, some story behind this that Richard hasn't mentioned. Okay, um, and then of course uh, in two years we have three more moon bases established: uh, moon cities of Wells, Vern, and Goddard. Okay, and then um, in uh, 1975, communist China collapses. I don't understand why, but it did. Okay, and then we get to 1980, which it says cloud computing for home and business, and we'll get to that a little later because that's that's when we we'll start talking about computer technology and whatever. So um, that's a really that's a really short timeline for all these changes, uh, and uh, and and so like 
or was the America just kind of running ginormously into the negatives and debt in order to do all this? Because I don't see the technology here, the, the be, you know, the, the, the benefit to society initially with all this stuff. Well, let's go back to page two, uh, which is page 10 of the PDF. Uh, I think the most important thing is the atomic converter. That right there makes a lot of this possible. You have a cheap nuclear reactor that provides you with electricity to power everything. You don't need it doesn't need to be very big. I think we said one size a yard in one yard in size, Richard. Well, that was later on. No, no, he, that's that's that's. Well, go, I'm sorry, go, Richard. Answer your question. What size was the atomic uh, was the atomic converter? The converters could probably be anywhere from a square foot to a square yard, sometimes even larger. Okay, because later on, you know, when we look at the technology later on, it's, it's basically just a square yard. And it runs on something other than thorium, which is, which is another thing that we got to talk about. It actually runs on thorium. So it could convert a medium-grade reactive material like thorium into electricity. Yes, John, but later on, it runs on water. Mm. Yep. Okay. So just just telling you, we're really talking about two different two different things here. Okay, I mean it's, it, uh, it it looks the same, but it isn't. The three pieces of technology that they got from the uh, uh, the alien spacecraft was was a what they call he call, Richard calls a lift core, which is basically uh, anti gravity because it not only negates mass, but apparently it's what's used to drive the ship. Right, Richard. Yeah, which actually the lift cores make the drop the mass of the ship. But what dro- what actually drives the ship? Uh, what moves the ship is basically is, is why are they rockets? <laughs> rockets. Rockets using what is fuel? You're talking about locks? <laughs> no, we're talking about water. Okay, we have rockets that are using water as fuel. Why not? Because you're not explaining this technology, Richard. Okay, the, the liquor is not providing the ability to move. Okay, then your rocket engines are. You know, you're not explaining what it is that they're doing in order to produce th- uh, thrust. Balonium. Because you have some choices here, Richard. I mean, you could say that they had fusion. You could say that they had uh, ion power. Likely, it is fusion or ion. Okay, I mean, it could just be locks, you know, because when a ship weighs almost nothing, it doesn't take a really uh, that that much locks in order to move it. Or the reactors in the ship could convert the locks into, or pardon me, could convert the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, and just burn it. Real simple. Yeah, and then it's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not a whole lot. We're talking, I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. We're not talking about a lot of water here. So that's one reason why a chemical reaction is actually a little better. Oh, I was going to say, I was looking at this. If it, if you can negate the mass, if you can actually completely cancel out the mass. Yeah, well, that's not clear either. So the, the point I'm trying to get across to Richard and, and get him to explain is that the, the three pieces that he says were essential to creating a space technology, um, even a, a solar system technology, was the lift core that allowed anti-gravity, in a sense, to negate mass, okay, so that a ship could be easily lifted. 
Um, and the second one was the atomic converter, which produced uh, cheap and plentiful and safe uh, electrical power in massive quantities. Okay, and the third discovery, uh, which was the process that created collapsium steel, uh, which uh, allowed a, um, a piece of steel to basically t uh, become half its size, four times its structural strength, yet the same mass. Right. I just saw Ant-Man. That sounds like what, what, what the Pym particle does. <laughs> yeah. Now, my, my thought is, if you can actually... If you actually can cancel out the mass of the ship, then, the, then all you need to do is break contact with the Earth. And then the rotational velocity of the Earth will fling you off at 1,000 miles an hour. Well, that's true, but that's not how it was depicted. And that's also not how generally we, we talk about things taking off. I mean, we're not talking necessarily – I, I, I doubt if it was 100% negation of mass. But if you get down to styrofoam levels, yeah, yeah, you can use a ball rocket and go into space. <laughs> mm, no, but 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 yeah, okay. I mean, so when we go to page fifteen on here, okay, uh, it, it actually becomes a little bit clearer. But then the questions also rise. So it's under lift technology. So the, uh, it ah. says once your rocket motor breaks with the ground. Uh, you can accelerate to 600 miles per hour and achieve orbit. The lift field brings the user safely to Earth where the ship regains its mass after it touches down. So that's why I was asking him about the lift field because it seems like it actually does provide some amount of propulsion. I disagree with Richard. Uh, 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 he's basically used this in a lot of other games. Um, you know, when you talk about breaking contact with the ground, that's kind of a magical concept, and it really is unnecessary. What we're, what I think we should really be talking about is electrical isolation. Okay, essentially, you have to be uh, ungrounded from the ground. Okay, you, you know, resistors or whatever. You have your spaceship; it's in a cradle of some kind, and it's insulated from the ground electrically and so you basically turn on your lift field and at that point you're floating and you can just take any uh or you're close to floating because depending upon how much is getting rid of your mass and you then use your rockets to fly up out of the cradle it's pretty it's simple it's it's convenient it, it because otherwise you've got these ships that are met are made out of all this collapsium steel, and you're going to have to have a mother of a rocket engine to get that thing up off the ground enough so that all of a sudden the field can kick in. And when that happens, then just as I think uh, this is where John was going. Okay, now you've got let's say I don't I I, I can't put it in the right terms because I'm not a, a an engineer, but you've got all these. Millions of pounds of thrust lifting the spacecraft off of the pad, right? And bam, all the all the mass goes away. Yet the thrust does not. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean, Bruce. It says here in downside of impact, the crew and cargo are far more fragile than the ship. Crew can be slammed into walls and decks as well as hardware. This can result in minor bumps to broken bones, the life forms splatter into jelly. Now, if you are rocketing up, and as soon as you break contact with the ground and your mass negates, the G-forces are going to turn you into something resembling runny gelato, which means they're going to have <laughs> to have the incredible inertial compensator to make sure you aren't squished flat. 
Well, I'm not necess- that may not necessarily be true because also remember that you're not going to have hardly any mass yourself. Yeah, we had that argument before whether whether it, it works like it works like a bal- turns sh- turns the ship into a balloon, or it, or or it creates a large negative mass which negates the a virtual negative mass which negates the positive mass of the ship and you get less mass, but not necessarily massless. The ship still has its mass. Traps point is is that all of a sudden you know it, it's like you're literally going to jump to 600 miles an hour instantly. So you, wherever you are, you're going to go slamming into the back of your seat, into a bulkhead, whatever. Things are just going to fly like crazy. And I'm thinking that maybe that's not necessarily the best way of of, of representing this. I thought about this and I th- realized all you got to do is break connection. You don't need you don't need big rocket motors. Uh, if you're on a civilized pad. All you need is a trap door. It, it's just simply the the bound the base of the launch pad drops while you have the drive to, you have the lift turned on. You're no longer in contact. Bye bye. Turn your engine on and fly away. Now, John, you, you still have to have enough thrust to negate the pull of gravity against all those tons and tons of collapsium steel. That's what I'm talking about. That's the that's the that's the million foot pounds of 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 thrust. That's coming out, just making you hover. Yeah, you still need the thrust, John. Well, I'm, no, no, no. I'm saying you turn on your lift drive before you hit the, you open up the trap door. That's right. Until you break contact, then you're no longer you you no longer have the mass. That's and then you have by the trap door. As yes. you turn on that drive, you hit that trap door. You're no longer in contact with the Earth. And then. And then you- you just use your normal your normal drive speed. You need your normal your your normal cruising drive speed for your engine. I mean, look at the size of that engine. Look at the size of the fuel tank. It's designed for something that weighs a ton, not millions of tons. There's no way you 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 burn to that fuel in a second just trying to get off the pad. Well, I, I agree. That's what I'm saying. I don't like this. I've never liked this. Okay, I think it makes a lot more sense to just simply say that the spaceship has to be electrically isolated. From the ground, you know, once every, just have, you know, just have a, a, a resistors or whatever, use, um, you know, even use some kind of electromagnetic, um, 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 uh, magnetic technology to, 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 to separate or whatever. And then, yes, and then, and then the, the thing kicks in and then you can fly away using a minimal amount of thrust. Um, though, you know, with the shape of the ship, I'm not quite sure how much thrust you would need in order to reach 600 MPH. Um, now, the problem with that, uh, Bruce, is that you can't launch in a rainy day then because all that rainwater dri- dripping down the sides of your ship will, will, will basically put you in contact. Unless, of course, you're in a silo. Yeah, if you're in a silo or they got you know, or they do something to protect to keep the water off the ship. At least so he's off the landing pads, off the landing legs. Yeah, you, you have some way to break it. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you might be right, John. I mean, if you went the route we're talking about with me, okay, then yes, maybe they can't uh, launch on a rainy day. That would be actually a very realistic thing to do. Bad weather can't launch. I mean, it's like, you know, you have people like 10 miles out saying, I'm not feeling any rain. Okay. But what's the, the worst case scenario is, is the ship does not launch. It doesn't go, it doesn't get started and crash. Yeah, it, you know, it is. You're, if you're in the middle of the desert and there's a sandstorm, well, you got to have guys out with shovels keeping the legs clear. All that sand. 
<laughs> Again, that's why I said some kind of a cradle makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, because that works great for civilized ports. Now I'm on the moon. First time. How do I get off? You know, uh, so I'm thinking there is another way of doing this to break the contact. If you don't happen to have the happy, the lucky little trapdoor or or, or, you know, or things like that, pistons, big you know, pneumatic pistons that push the ship up high enough. You turn on your drive, so you got so you got your so your, your um, rocket drive. Then you turn on the lift technology, and then you just t- turn the valve and make a vacuum, and the pistons shoot up. And before the ship can hit the ground, it's it's now in low mass and starts taking off. Yeah, well, you're right. They would have to do something because most of the places as you go for like colonies and things like that, they're not going to have a, a, a waiting space cradle for you. Yeah, we're talking that civilized, they got a trap door and off you go. Uncivilized, the ship's got to be able to break its own contact without using that much fuel. Now, this is all assuming, of course, the you know um, that you need you basically need your engine in order to lift you up, so this doesn't happen. Which is again also one of the reasons why I was kind of talking about the idea. Elect- you can electrically neutralize your ship a lot easier than what you're suggesting, John, which is a mechanical thing. I mean, it's kind of like that. You jack up the ship, you put something underneath it that's electrically neutral, you set it back down on top of it, you leave, leave that behind. It doesn't have to be very thick, just something that will act as an insulator from the ground. Yeah, I mean, I can see it now. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to, you're, you're at the, you're, you're, you've landed at a starport and you're busy leaving. You see the grounding cable attached to your ship and the port master going, you still owe me money. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Nobody leaves until you're properly inspected. Yes. <laughs> and by that, and by that he means bribed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I said, the the uh, the main things that they were doing was they they had the thorium reactor to p- provide lots of electricity in a safe way. They had the lift technology, which was able to gate the way of the ship, and through some means of isolating the ship from the ground, uh, they were then able to use relatively uh, minor amounts of thrust in order to lift it off of the pad, get it into space. Uh, and then go wherever they wanted to, because once you're in space, you're halfway to anywhere, said the Heinlein. Okay? So, and from there, they flew over to the, um, and the, let's see, and then the third thing uh, was the collapsium. Now, um, Trav, what were the benefits of this collapsium steel? Well, it says um, steel could be collapsed to half its size, four times its structural strength, yet still weighed the same. And I mentioned it kind of like, because I just saw Ant-Man two days ago, it kind of sounds like that, like uh, compressing the distance between atoms is what it seems yeah. like. No, it does mean it's also four times as dense, and that's shielding from radiation. That means yeah. it's actually that, uh, with steel, with iron, uh, com- iron compressed to that point gets to, to the level of osmium of den- for density, but it's you know thinner and not as bulky as osmium is. Uh, so yeah. You could make it. You could so yeah. It makes it's radiation shielding, right? Well, it basically says that it, it stops even. Uh, it's not just radiation shielding, like you you'd say four times as much. It's actually so good that it stops cosmic rays. 
So we're talking serious, you know, um, you know, and, and again, these early stories of space travel, nobody ever worried about getting some, I mean, as a matter of fact, if you got hit by some stray rays of cosmic rays, it was beneficial. You became the Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody else was like, oh, okay, man, there's so little ra- cosmic radiation out here that we, you know, we, we can't ever have that lucky uh, mutation accidents and stuff, yeah. Yeah, now, now this, we have to say where, where this came from. This is a tip of a hat from H. Beam Piper. Uh, he actually used collapsium in his novels. Now, his collapsium makes this stuff like it's made out of tissue, made out of styrofoam. Uh, his collapsium it was basically neutronium, stable neutronium. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it was a lot denser. But it would, you know, basically you'd have a, I see the size of a of a, of a pint glass covered in a, a thin, almost molecule thick layer of collapsium and weigh five hundred pounds. <clears throat> you know, mm. so yeah, a lot denser. So this is like this is baby steps collapsium. I would imagine as time goes on, they get better and better, and collapsium gets thinner and thinner, and you need less of it then. Well, I, I mean, it just depends. I mean, it is. It's not clear how much shielding you need in order to protect yourself from anything. It's there's a lot of gray and and uh, hand waving going on in this game, John. Oh God! Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, that's how that, that's how things are flying around here. The, the, the hand waves alone would, would keep the keep would cool the Earth down, and probably flutter flutter you into high orbit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but it looks like this all this came from the Roswell. And uh, yes, the crash we're talking about is the Roswell crash. So here it's a real thing, and th- and the Hughes company, uh, Howard Hughes, is the one who reverse engineered all this. Uh, he basically he, him his folks and the and the dream team. You know, so between Hughes and the Dream Team, they basically worked out how this how this sucker worked. Right. Well, uh, according to the text, John uh, Howard Hughes uh, is what re- he's the one who figured out how to do the collapsium steel. Yeah. It was the other guys that managed to figure out how to do the thorium reactor and how to do the lift core. Yeah. Actually, no. So you're wrong. It's, uh, Hughes did the lift core, but I'm pretty sure that everybody else did the atomic converter. That's not really something that Hughes is known for. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm looking at the the, at the dream. Where's the dream team? Um, where's it? Was there we go? It was uh, uh, Sprague Camp, Isaac Asimov, Willie Lay, and Vernon Van Brown. Of the of those folks, the only two, the only three real scientists were Isaac Asimov, Willie Lay, and were Vernon Van Brown. What was Sprague Camp's specialty? I can't remember. I thought he was a chemist. Ah, you're right. Asimov is a biologist. Willie Laser Rockets was a rocket scientist, just like Vernon Von Braun. We were just talking about uh, the Dream Team, uh, and we were we were wondering who was it that had the uh, expertise to uh, reverse engineer the atomic converter. Yeah, uh, probably uh, Oak Ridge. So they went outside the the, the group. Uh, well, the, or, or the group was working at Oak Ridge. I thought they were. Wor- I thought they were all working out of uh, Area Fifty One. Was much later. No, I meant I thought they were all working out of Hughes, the Hughes facility. No, no, no. It, the stuff sat in Wright Patterson in Ohio. Yeah, because yeah. that's where Wright Pat is the best place. I think that's where the the actual wreckage went. Yes, but where where did they actually do the development of all this stuff? Was it there at Wright Patterson? 
Probably <laughs> it was Oak Ridge or, you know, probably Oak Ridge. Okay, so they moved all this to Oak Ridge, and, and, uh, but the actual first launch was out of uh, uh, the facility at Hughes. A facility at Hughes, probably either California or um, somewhere out in Arizona. Well, it said Hughes Tucker Industrial launches the first spaceship from Nevada, 1951, yeah. moon launch landing. Good, Good enough. Yeah. So who did he? Here's a question for him: Who who did he pilot? Because I know he. This is Hughes from the Ford, from before he got crazy, uh, crazier. Uh, did he pilot the ship? I wouldn't doubt it. No clue. <laughs> Probably some guy named Jaeger. No, I, I I would pretty much guarantee that Hughes would be on that ship, on the first launch to space. Yeah, I don't think he'd pass that up, Bruce. I. I agree. I, I mean, he flew the the Spruce Goose. You think he'd pass up on the first moon launch when it was under his purview? He broke many speed records in the in the thirties with his own design. So yeah, I think this is a guy who would say, "Yeah, no, I'm flying this." But this, I don't care. I'm flying this thing, and if it blows up, well, then you know what went wrong and fix it. If if it, if it works, then we make more of them. Well, there's I mean, a reason why DiCaprio was in the movie called The Aviator about him, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very good story. Uh, they had the, the the moon landing, but that was basically just like our our first moon landing. It was kind of like, we did it, yay! You know, uh, but there wasn't uh, any real plans, apparently, to set up a moon base at that time. There were a lot of plans at that time to set up a moon base, and NASA was going, and then Congress killed it all. Well, like I said, there wasn't any money behind it. Well, there was there was money behind it, but no. they would not. The Congress would not let NASA sell the technology they were developing. They had to give it to American industry and then buy it back. This is all true. I know. No, the only thing I can think of is that they landed on the moon. I don't think anyone stepped out because the pressure suits of 1951 were not up to the lunar standards. You know, they weren't. You can bet they probably they got out of the ship and they brought back some rocks. They set up some equipment. Yeah, maybe a quick jump as their ships as their suits leaked atmosphere. What we know from actual you know life in space is is that human bodies can tolerate going down to about five pounds per square inch, and that's a pretty light spacesuit. Okay, the biggest things that the spacesuits provide protection against is you know micrometeorites and um, you know radiation and a lot and, and well and heat actually cold no heat and cold the, yeah the stuff in the sun is gets hot the stuff in the shell gets cold right but if you land on on, on a planet uh, or, or on the moon I should say uh, where it's already been in the sun okay it's not going to immediately turn the negative 400 degrees below zero so you've got some time to work with you could probably get out of the uh, of the spaceship on the shady side it would still be relatively warm you could look around take a few pictures real quick get back in and fly back because you know everybody's you know this is the great thing about this thing and, and that is that um, depending upon how much thrust they decided to use on this first launch uh, because since they got up into space using hardly any power because of the lift core they could actually fly to the moon fast okay so that means that they could have been to the moon and back within a single day you know think of the party that everyone wants to get back to that night 
Yeah, and I bet they planned a flag, but it was, of course, a fabric flag, and and I can see them going, "It's not, flu- it's not fluttering." Yeah, of course not. It's vacuum. Someone's going to hold it up on the end and, and take a picture, so that's fine. Yeah, so I'm sure that all happened, uh, and and like I said, I'm, I'm I was susp- I I personally would say that they would have gone out and come back the same day. You know, they would have launched in, in you know basically at dawn, flown out. You know, did uh, you know, maybe did an orbit around the, the moon once just to make sure that the landing thing was good, and then they would have landed, gone and done whatever, got back in, flew back, landed, big parade. I mean, not big parade, big big celebration on the air on on well, not the aircraft carrier because they're not going to land in a capsule. They're going to land back in Nevada, right? Yep, yeah. they're going to land the ship. They went to uh, Vegas. Come on, or. I mean, are they going to land? In, are, are they going to land there, or are they going to land in Washington D.C.? No, you don't want to land spaceships in Washington. You're probably going to no, land no, no, it in no. Nevada. What, why not? I mean, again, it's not like it's a big giant bomb anymore. Yeah, we were, we were so, talking about this, Richard. You really don't need a big drive to get off. All you got to do is break contact with the Earth, and exactly. off you go. You can use a trap door for that in a civilized in a civilized uh, port. You know, chapter drops, and you're no longer connected, and off you go at the nice, you know, safe speed. I'm sorry, John. Every think- time you say civilized port, I'm thinking they're holding on to the joystick <laughs> with pinkies up. I mean, just. <laughs> but the question is, Richard, they're on the moon. They're on the moon now, and it's quite. Pot- and I don't see how they can break contact with the ground unless they do some sort of trick. I'll I mean, fire uh, their engines. But. But there's still that many multi-tons of mass, and I doubt they have the fuel to even even on the moon to get off the ground. Um, John, I'm not worrying about that kind of thing. Don't forget. It's, so, this is fantasy. It's not even science. <laughs> no, no. You don't get to do that, uh, Richard. You, you put a product out there, and the fans are going to do with it as they do. So one solution I had was... You have pistons, uh, pneumatic pistons that just lift the ship up and then snap back th- thanks to vacuum inside the piston. You're no longer in contact. And before you fall, you, you just keep on going up at that point on the drive. <laughs> okay. I like that. Okay. Yeah. My suggestion was is that you, you go and you have something similar to that, but you jack up one fin and you slide an insulating material underneath where the fin is, lower it back down on top of it for the other three, and then now you've got the electric, you know, you've got your electrical isolation, and you can then turn on your drive and take off because you're no longer connected to the ground. Electrically, yeah. Electrically, yeah. Well, I mean, otherwise it's like some kind of mystical thing, Richard, where you're touching the ground. It's like, and... And the, you know the the ley lines are grabbing onto you. It won't let you go. My my thoughts about here's my thought about this. Richard can confirm or not. The problem is is that when you're connected to the ground and you turn on the the lift core, it's trying to negate the mass of the Earth and it ain't got the power to do it. Now theoretically, you could build a lift core big enough to move the Earth because it's just an engineering problem. It's just an engineering problem. That's just more magic, John. Why would any process consider the entire planet to be part of the ship? You're connected. I mean, when solid mass touches, let's uh, uh, be honest. If it was mass, if it's matter, if it's contacting matter, then being in the atmosphere is still touching matter. Exactly. That's why you don't can't go by that. 
That's why it makes sense. To, John, you're the one who made the big deal about the fact you didn't want to create a whole new um, science when it came to psionics, and that's why it was all electromagnetic. Yeah. Okay. So, but you want a different story now? I wanted to. I'm, I'm basically get backing you up on this, and you're giving me trouble. No, no, no. Just put you know, the electrical thing. Like we said, there are issues with electrical, electrical. But I'm, I'm good with that too. Both are good. In fact, you know, both our solutions actually work. And it's technology that would make sense to a 1950s mind. Yep. I mean, if it is electrically connected, but it does give me an idea, though. If it, if 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 you've been with Richard. Uh, can they build lift cores big enough to sl- slap onto, say, a small 100-meter asteroid and now truck it around like it's made out of styrofoam? Probably. <laughs> I don't see why not. Yeah. I can see, you know, and with, and with the layers of technology, especially the recyclers, mining an asteroid just becomes a guy with a shovel shoveling it into a, into a, into a popper. <laughs> That's oh, and you know, on. in those asteroids, like Ceres and all that, there's <laughs> all sorts of metals, like what nickel and iron, and you know, there yeah. are all well, sorts of metals in the asteroids. I, I hate to say this, but a lot of technology is, is very. Uh, in fact, Ian Richard brings this up: unintended consequences of of this technology with cheap power. Uh, yeah. Uh, I either can build ba- really highly efficient batteries, or I just put my small. You know, you know, uh, converter in the house and charge the car up and drive around on an electric car. Who needs oil? It would just be the availability of thorium. Yeah. Huh. The line or, from or, Back or, to the Future. Oh, I suppose you can just go to the corner store and get some plutonium. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, once we get into space and start mining asteroids, thorium becomes a lot easier to find that way. So, yeah. Oh, it- we, we got spaceships. And, and since it doesn't take a lot to get into space, it's going to be really easy to go and explore other worlds. And so, of course, they immediately say, what are we mucking around with a world that isn't very interesting? It's a dead hulk. It's the moon. Let's go to Mars. And so they rush off to Mars because, again, if you're, you know, if you can bring a big, a fair amount, a large amount of mass with you into space, you know, you've got a lot of reaction mass or whether you have something you're going to, you know, use for ion exchange or whatever you want to do. You know, you now can then, you know, go like crazy for Mars and get there instead of it being like three years or something like that. You can make it in a couple weeks, which is the way all the stories were back then. It's uh, with the current things we have, it's 18 months to Mars. And with the ion mm-hmm. drive, it's it probably a, a bit less. Right, but those ion drives aren't going to be the gin- uh, you know aren't going to be as ginormous as they could be with this lift technology. You could have some really big drives. Actually, you're, you're just taking ballistic orbits, point in the direction you want to go, fire up, and drop. If you drop the mass enough, you go like spit. And yeah, you're you're there in days. Who does curvy orbits? You just draw straight lines in the map. <laughs> yeah. yep. That's the spirit. That's the idea. You know, something that an average person could do with a you know with a with a, a, a triangle and and, and a, a slide rule. Oh, that's just gonna ask you, Richard. The, the the first spaceship to the moon. It wasn't called Luna, was it? Oh, probably not. It was probably called Enterprise. <laughs> oh, come on. Heinlein was involved. Heinlein's involved. He'd call it Luna. <laughs> no, that's where you're going, John. No, no, no. Uh, okay, this is a little bit of trivia. What was the name of the ship in Destination Moon? 
Luna. And what was the name of the ship that went there in his future history? Oh, Harriman's ship? I forgot what Harriman's ship was called. So he's had a number of ships go to the moon that you know wasn't ever you know really clear. All right. So anyway, so uh, so th- that could be an explanation of why they decided to do a Mars base first. It might also be the fact that Mars has water, and therefore you know, it's more likely that they would be able to supply themselves without a constant supply to the moon base. The moon base would actually be like, even though it's close and nearby, it actually is a lot more trouble to keep supplied because of that lack of water that they probably wouldn't know about because again back in the 1950s they didn't know of any water on the moon yeah now we know there's water on the moon well let's see 1954 was the mars landing and they i I assume they probably found the water on the moon before they got there due to telescopes we didn't find water on mars i'm sorry the ice caps yeah Right, exactly. We didn't find out about water on Mars until, what, a couple years ago? Well, we knew it had ice caps, but but everyone thought it was like CO2 ice. And they're right, because that's on one end, but the water's on the other. Right. Well, we just found out recently that water ice is on Mars. I remember only hearing about water ice on Mars in maybe the last two or three years. And folks, you know, I'm not the scientists that John Orblix or even Richard. Hard science is not my thing. But I remember hearing the story that water ice was found on Mars only a couple years ago. But in oh, this timeline, right. 1950s? Right, but with these ships, uh, Trav, you can fly, do a flyby of Mars and take all your readings really closely. Okay, where, you know, it took us years and, and, and billions of dollars to to get those uh, Mars rovers out there to even try to do this kind of thing. This is an important question, Richard. Are we ta- is, is, is the solar system the real solar system, or is it the 50 solar system? Um, it's, well, we're, we eventually get into the fact that it is the, it is the, the real solar system. Okay. Yeah, that's important. Planet. Yeah, that's important. The reason I'm bringing that because in 1950 they thought Mars had vegetation on it because of the dark areas. Well, or something with that because it was it was changing with the seasons. <laughs> hmm. Uh, yeah. But yeah. as it turns hey. out, none of that was there. Or our first yeah, yeah. probe after it landed killed it all. Well, actually, I wouldn't imagine to be a probe. Uh, in this case, I don't think there would be any probes. I mean, they would say, I would say sometime in 1952, they go, we're going to Mars, but we, we, we don't know what it looks like. So there probably would have been a couple of missions just to map Mars so they can figure out where to land. They would, do, they would do flybys, and they would do some mapping, and then they'd land. Well, they'd also want to find the proper place to land. They don't want to, you know, just <laughs> land blindly. They want to find the optimal area to set down. That's within reach of, like, the most scannable stuff. Oh, we found all the stuff we can scan. Well, then we need to find a place that's kind of equidistant to all that. Oh, look, we found the perfect place. So, yeah, they're going to want to figure all that out before they just drop a ship there. Yeah, and they probably spend months there. I mean, basically, if it's it's just days, you can actually have another ship come out there so often and restock them with food while they're busy, you know, mapping. Because mapping takes a while. This is not. This is not something you do in a day. It will probably take them a good. The reason they landed in 1954 because it took them probably two years to map the place enough to find a good spot to land. 
so yeah, and that's probably why they had the space stations. The space stations were there not really, probably not for anything other than as a convenient construction construction spot for the Mars settlement ships, which probably were built in orbit. Well, yeah, let's see. Mars landing, 1954. Mars base, 1956. Well, yeah, once they get landed and check the place out, yeah, it's going to take them four years to figure out where to put the base, which I assume they're probably going to put the base near where they first landed because they figure, well, if we can land here, you know, we can set up a whole settlement here. So, yeah, I I figure it would take about four years. And yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's the space stations are needed to build the ships in space. You need a work a work crew in place, so that's why that's and that's what Hyde, and that's what von Braun wanted to do. He wanted to build. Oh, sorry, two uh, years. I read misread that. It's fifty six, not fifty eight. My bad. Yeah, sorry. yeah. I don't get it, John. Why would they want to build in space? I mean, because you can build bigger ships and ships that aren't aerodynamic. Yeah, but these are ships that are landing on Mars. Mars does have an atmosphere. How's that helping us? Let me put it this way. This is Werner von Braun. Uh, his ideas of a colony are something that you need to actually assemble in space first before you land on, the Mar- on Mars. Uh, so, yeah, they'd be too air- unaerodynamic, too, too probably big to actually lift off the Earth without doing some fancy work, footwork. But if you put them, in, put them together in space, you actually can build a bigger ship. Well, yeah, because you're not constricted by gravity. That's why yeah. they have space docks, like you know, in Star Trek, they got you know yeah. space, station. which is not necessarily a good thing. Trav, I mean, <laughs> gravity helps you. We have construction equipment and 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 uh, that are designed to move things using gravity to assist. So you know, um, things drive together better when gravity is holding them tightly together. But anyways, I, I can see the advantage of having one, at least one big ship that acts nothing as more than a shuttle between one planet and another, and then other ships which would then actually go and land. It's, it's called a cycler. Uh, this is actually something that's been thought of a long time ago. A ship, its only purpose in life is to go someplace and come back, and does so in a cycle. And you have, probably have more than one. And of course, because the Mars and Earth move around, you probably have to have more than one just to keep you know, keep up with things. And when, yeah. uh, when they're in conjunction, that's the longest trip because you have to go around the sun to get to, to Mars. Except you no longer have to do that sort of thing because you've got lots of fuel. Yeah. Unless, of course, we're talking about such enormous amounts of mass that are being moved along, even at the reduction, that it actually still makes sense to have to have powerful thrusters. Anyways, it's hard to say. Okay, because the biggest because what's going to happen is is that um, is that we're going we're making more and more of a connection with these aliens, okay? And the aliens, after initially being a little bit concerned about us, seem to basically start dropping more and more technology on us, and that just causes this enormous you know curve this you know of of technology improvements. Or humanity revitalized the aliens. The aliens were dying off. And the mm-hmm. contact with us and living with us actually had done them wonders. Right. So I'm just saying is that they're going to be introducing all kinds of technology. A lot of the technology that they're using in these early spacecraft are going to be essentially uh, uh, antiquated 
within decades because once we get real trade going between Earth and, and the galaxy, they're going to start bringing in the really good technology like the, you know, the, the, uh, the lift balls and the various things like that. I mean, that we're going to be, you know, that, that things actually become to. So you have really, you know, Richard talked about two different campaigns. There's really three campaigns. There's the initial campaign before you know, which happens starting at Ground Zero up until the um, uh, the Mar uh, the Martians uh, the Greys uh, colony becomes fully established and they start wanting to go and you know trade back with their the rest of the galaxy and then there's going to be the 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 second one which is where we're actually in a trading uh, environment we're actually in interstellar space we're setting up colonies all that kind of stuff, that's the second part. And then there's the final part, which is where we're just basically part of the, of the Galactic Empire, or not Empire, the Galactic Confederation, and you just li- you're, we're just living the same life everybody else is living, just surrounded with a whole lot of other aliens. Yep, yep. Now, I, I did some questions here, Richard, for you. Um, for example, in 1980, it says, Cloud Computing for Home and Business. It looks to me that this is just a um, – these are all remote connections to big mainframes. There is no microcomputer revolution as far as I can see. No, nope. We have the ENIAC, Bertha. Yeah. Wait a minute. Where is that at? Page five. Uh, ah, page yes. 13. Some of us work with these, machi- these machines. Yeah. Otherwise known as UNIVAC. So – Okay, so my my next question is on the spacecraft. Do they have their own computers? Sure. I mean, how big are they? I mean, on, when we look at this spacecraft that you've got on page fifteen, is that a, like an entire floor? Is one of the is the computer on the spacecraft? Uh, at least a few feet across, four or five feet, but very limited in what what's on it, or its computing does power. It, does the, the mostly. I would think mostly used for navigation. So, does, hey, here's my question, Richard: Does the navigator actually have to cut his own cams? No, John. <laughs> you might have to punch some cards, but yeah. I, well, I'm talking about, actually. No cams would be no cams would be much better than actually cards because cams are analog, and you'd rather have your ship run by an analog system than a digital system. And, and nobody's going to understand why, John. So why? Uh, magnetics would throw off the digital. No, no. I mean, basically, uh, an analog system is continuous. There's no blip, 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 blip. It's continuous. Now, it's not as versatile because with cams, it's rotating cams that basically drive various things. This is old technology. I mean, this is how a lot of early um, um, uh, autopilots were operated. They, they would use cams. They were carved into a certain fig into a certain shape and that would then designate the course. In fact, in a lot of early Highline stories, he's talking about the, there's a lathe shop on board the ship so they, they can make, carve cams for the ship's navigator so you can then program the, the flight using the, using the cams to drive different, different aspects of the ship's drives. Ah. So, uh, I mean, it, it'd be very Highline to actually have a, a cam drives, cam-driven system. Um, punch cards. Yeah, I would see that maybe for maybe the non-ships drives, but yeah, navigation. Eh, they may actually what works. You know, I, I remember it took them how how many years to upgrade the computers on the uh, on the battleships? I don't know. The, okay, yeah, the, all the World War II battleships use 
analog computers. And they were very accurate uh, for, the, for the systems. In fact, they couldn't get a digital system as accurate as the old cam-driven systems on the on all the old mothball battleships. So I think it probably took like 85 or 90, something in the late 80s, early 90s, we finally, finally got computers good enough to replicate what was being done with the old analog computers. And if that's the case, I can still see I'm still using analog systems for up until, like I say, until we get these good uh, smaller computers. As soon as we get real trade happening between us and the aliens, then it's all going to change. Because essentially, they're going to walk in and say, "Here's this thing, of, you know, the size of a of a cube, and it you know it has more computing power than every computer you've ever created." And its name is Eustace. When you know, the galactic technology is essentially, Richard has lifted uh, pretty much all the stuff from uh, the technology from his incursion books, um, and and just said, "This is what the galactic culture is like." So. You know, and they're like you know, uh, worlds above where we are now with our you know, our technology. So it, it, it's that's the sort of thing that's now going to start being introduced. You know, in the early um, in the, in well in the '60s, essentially at, at the least, at the latest, the '70s. You know, you're going to start getting this stuff slow, slowly, and then and then ever ever more rapidly coming in because once you know, there people find out that we're willing to trade. They're going to start, you know, they said, you go to a, a world you, you, you've never met before. You say, do you want to fight or do you want to trade? And, they, and if, they're, if you're lucky, they say, we want to trade, at which point you then dump a ton of stuff on them to make them happy. And then they don't want to fight you and you just bring, slowly bring them into the Galactic Federation. Well, guess what? That's what happened to us. Yeah. Okay. So there's going to be a lot of technology being dumped on uh, – America first, and then all of our trading partners, because everything seems to be oriented around good old USA. USA! USA! This is Bruce Sheffer saying, there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. Wait, you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.